Okay, so we're here with uh, Dr. Peter Gray. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, so we're early childhood educators and we're very interested in play. Uh, you're probably the foremost play expert. Um, and one of the things we're very interested about is what play is, how play develops, uh, and what is real play or true play. Um, so one of the things we want to talk about first is the biological foundations of self-directed play or self-directed education. Uh, and on your website blog, Psychology Today, it says children come into the world with the instinctive drives to educate themselves. Can you tell us a bit more about those instinctive drives and how that works? Yeah. Um, you know, there's no real mystery to it. Uh, if you look at children and you really look at children and you just watch them and in their natural way of being, you see, first of all, how curious they are. They're so curious about the world around them. They are constantly exploring the world. As soon as they can move, they're moving around in order to get to things, to reach them, to manipulate them, to you know, see what you can do with this thing. <laughs> they are trying to understand the world around them from really essentially the moment they're born onward. Um, there's, there's even research with, with newborn babies, just an hour or two old, and if you show them a pattern, just when their eyes are just beginning to be able to fixate and see, and they look at one pattern, and then you show them a choice between that pattern and another pattern, and they'll look more at the other pattern. <laughs> it's as if I've, I've already kind of figured out what this is, now I wanna look at this and see what this is. They're just, they're just always exploring. Think of what little children learn when, you know, when they're first two or three or four years before, before anybody ever tries to, in any systematic way, teach them anything. They're just constantly learning. They're constantly exploring the world. They're especially interested in other people. They want to know what other people do. They're paying attention to what people do. They're looking. They're overhearing once they can understand language. They learn language, of course, on their own. Nobody teaches children their native language. They, all, they learn it by listening, by paying attention, by, you know, they're so... is the uh, drive to learn about the world around you. So education involves sort of two major co components you can think of. One is knowledge, learning about the world in some ways, acquiring information. Curiosity is the drive that leads children to do that. And the other part of education is developing skills, developing the ability to do things. <laughs> and children come into the world biologically designed to play and they play play is doing things and play is how children practice all kinds of skills they come into the world designed to play at all of the basic skills that children all over the world have to learn they play at physical things you know climbing and running that that's how they develop their bodies they play at risky play. They want to play at somewhat dangerous things, and that's how they develop courage. That's how they learn that they can control fear, that they can experience a little bit of fear, and they can control themselves during that time. They play with language. It's how they learn language. They play imaginative games. You know, we're the animal that is capable of imagination, capable of thinking of things that aren't really there. And when children are playing imaginative games, they're practicing that, practicing thinking about hypothetical possibilities. And if this is true, what else has to be true? You know, let's pretend there's a, there's a troll under the bridge. And if there's a troll under the bridge, what does that mean? Well, we better not go under the bridge. That's hypothetical reasoning. And little three and four-year-olds are playing that way all the time when we give them the opportunity to do so. We're the animal that builds our environment. We've got opposable thumbs. We're, we're, we're for at least, a, at least a million years, our ancestors have been creating tools and, and, um, and, uh, and um, shelters to live in and means of conveyance and so on. And so it's no surprise that children come into the world biologically designed to play at building things, using those opposable thumbs, using that ability, the mental ability, as well as the physical ability to plan to build something and then to build it. 
So, and also they play more than anything else, they want to play with other children. They play socially. And the reason for that, the reason that natural selection created that strong drive is because probably the most important skill that children all over the world have to learn is how to get along with peers, how to get along with other people without some authority figure stepping in and solving the problem for you. So children, when they're playing with other children, are learning how to compromise. They're learning how to pay attention to whether their playmates are happy or not. You know, they're learning how to negotiate. They're learning all these really, really important social skills, which are critical to, um, to, to human life. So curiosity and play are the big parts of, the big and obvious parts of um, the instinct to educate yourself. Um, in addition to that, uh, I would add that children are naturally sociable. So I already said they want to play socially. They want to play with other kids. But they also want to know what other people know. They want to understand what other people understand. And so they're paying attention to what, um, what others are saying, whether it's adults or other children. They're paying attention to what they're doing and they're learning that way. Anthropologists who studied children throughout the world have told me that the primary way that children learn everywhere in the world is by looking. Uh, a lot about that. But one thing we want to move on to is how we define play. Um, in one of the articles we wrote recently, we quoted you in, in your definition of play, your five steps. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a bit about the five, what you define as play. Yes. Uh, so, um, well, first of all, an activity can be more or less playful. It doesn't have to be all or none, but I would define an activity as fully playful to the degree that it has um, the five characteristics that I will list and very briefly describe now. The first characteristic is that it is self-chosen and self-directed. So play is something that children or adults, if adults are playing, um, uh, do themselves, that they start themselves. They take the initiative to do it. It's their idea to do it. It's not something that somebody else is telling them to do. Um, um, and uh, also, not only are they taking the initiative to do it, but they are directing it. They are creating the rules or choosing what the rules will be to the degree that there are rules. Um, they are deciding how to make each move and so on. There's not some outside authority figure telling them what to do if it's play. So, um, so right off that shows something about what children are learning in play. They're learning how to take initiative and they're learning how to follow through on an activity and keep the activity going and guide guide the activity. So uh, um, also related to the fact that it's self-chosen and self-directed, remember that I said that children especially like to play with other children. So when two or more children are playing together, they have to decide together what they're playing and how they're playing it, which means that they have to negotiate. You know, I want to play this, but you, know, you want to play that. And so, well, what might we both want to play? Or I want to play it this way and you want to play it that way. How can we bring these ideas together and play in a way that we will both enjoy? So children, if you watch children playing, you'll often see they spend more time talking about how they're going to play and what they're going to play and what the rules will be and so on and so forth than they spend actually playing. And that's a good thing because that's how they're learning to negotiate. That's how they're learning how to, how to make deals in a way, how to get along with other people, how to make a plan uh, in, in, in conjunction with, with another person. So that's the first character, self-chosen, self-directed. In other words, if somebody else is saying, now children, we're all going to play this, it's not play <laughs> because it's only play if the children decide to do it. A second, the second characteristic is that play is intrinsically motivated. And what that means is that you're doing it for your own sake, for its own sake. You're not doing it 
in order to get some reward outside of the play itself. You're not doing it to get a trophy or to get a grade on a report card or to get a gold star or to get praise from your parents. You're doing it just because you want to do it. Um, it is an end in itself. And so there's a lot of reasons why that aspect of play is important for learning. But one of the reasons that it's important is play then is how children discover what they love to do. When children are playing at different things, they're playing at things that they like to do and they're discovering what they really love to do. And then they play even more at that and they become good at it. <clears throat> so play is how children discover what some people might call their passions, their real interests. And um, the, in my research on children who grew up with lots of opportunity to play, many of them go on to careers that are direct extensions of the kinds of, of things that they played at when they were children. So the third characteristic of play is that all play has rules. So this is, uh, this, this idea comes as a surprise to a lot of people because we think of play as very uh, free floating and so on freely, it is freely chosen and all of this. But yet, when the child decides to play, the child is making, uh, when the child decides to play something, the child is making a decision that restricts his own freedom or her own freedom while playing. Of course, the child can always quit. That's part of play. You can always quit. So that's it. You're free to play. You're also free to quit. But while you're playing, you are, you are constraining yourself to a particular set of activities, a particular, there's certain boundaries on what you can do or not. So let's say you're building a sandcastle on the beach. It might be just you or it might be you and another playmate building the sandcastle, you're not just randomly piling up sand, you're building a castle. You've decided to build a castle and you have something in your mind about what that castle will look like and you're going to be making it with sand. So this is very structured activity. Sometimes people talk about unstructured play. There's no such thing as unstructured play. It's always structured. And it's structured by the children themselves. They're creating the rules or they're adopting the rules for, for what they're playing. Or imagine even a couple of boys who are engaged in a play fight. You know, they're chasing one another around and maybe they're swinging sticks at one another or maybe they're wrestling. And think about the difference between a play fight and a real fight. The difference is the play fight has rules. The rules aren't necessarily stated, but they are implicitly understood by both of the players. You know, no biting, no kicking, no, if you're going to swing a stick, you can't really hit the other person with the stick. Uh, you just hit each other's sticks. <laughs> or you, you know, you, if, you, if you are the bigger and the stronger of the two, uh, you have to self-handicap in some way. In other words, all these rules are designed so you're not, you're going through the motions as if you're trying to hurt one another, but you're actually not hurting one another. That would end the play if you actually did. So all play, even that kind of play, is bound by rules. So another thing that children are learning in play then is how to control their behavior in accordance with rules. And when you're playing with more than one person, when you're playing with somebody else, it's a socially agreed upon rules. These, these are the ways we're, we have to play. Well, human beings everywhere in the world, we have to live by rules as part of being a human being. We have in every human society, there are rules that we have to follow to live by just in order to be able to live in society. And so children are practicing following rules whenever they're playing. So a fourth characteristic of play is even though it's bound by rules, there are always, there's always lots of room for imagination and creativity within the boundaries of those rules. In some sense, play is always imaginary. The, the child recognizes a difference between the real world and the play world. The play world is this sort of imaginary world that I've stepped into for the sake of play. Uh, play has time in and time out. Time in is when you are in this play world. Time out, you're stepping back to the real world. 
So isn't it interesting that even little children have this distinction in their mind. They automatically understand this distinction between the real world and the sort of fantasy pretend world of play. Well, this means that when they're playing, they're always exercising the ability to imagine something. And that ability underlies all higher order human thinking, what we call hypothetical thinking. Imagine that this is true. And if this is true, then what else has to be true? So children are always practicing that. And play is always creative. There's never, is play always on any move in play. It's up to you how to do it as long as you stay within the boundaries of the rules. But the boundaries of the rules don't dictate exactly what you have to do. So you are, you are always being creative in play. Play is, play is the most creative of all activities. And in some, to some degree, all create, creative activity is playful. So those are four characters. The fifth characteristic kind of follows from the others. And it is really that play occurs in a state of mind in which you are, um, in which the mind is actively involved. You can't be passive in play. Your mind has to be involved in play. Your mind is actively involved because you're following rules, because you're, you have to be, you, you, you have to be attuned to what you're doing all the time in play. But at the same time that the mind is very active, it's not overly stressed. You might be playing in a risky way, so you're feeling a little bit of stress, a little bit of fear, but if that stress becomes too great, you can always quit. So one of the characteristics of play is you can always quit. So that means play is a safe place to practice things that you might be afraid to practice in the real world because you could always quit. So the fact that you can quit means that you don't get overly stressed about whatever it is you're doing. And the fact that, that nothing depends upon this, it doesn't matter if you fail, it doesn't, nobody's judging you in play. There's no rewards to be won or lost. <laughs> So the so that's what makes play uh, that's what makes play non-stressed. Yeah, would that be the difference then between uh, playing games or structured games like basketball, uh, soccer? Well, I would include structured games within the context of play. Uh, uh, the difference, if if it's a game where, so in play there can be the goal of winning. All right, so you might be playing a game. Uh, in which in which uh, it's a competitive game and the aim is to win in that game maybe whether you're playing checkers or whether you're playing ping pong or whether you're playing baseball or whatever you want to try to win that's still play as long as the winning doesn't have any consequences outside of the game itself <laughs> so if you and I play a game and we're just having fun in the game and we are trying to win. It's, that's what makes it fun. We're trying to win, right? But in the end, we don't win any money for it. We don't get any prizes for it. We don't get any long-term prestige from it. It's just a friendly game. <laughs> then that's play. To the degree that a competitive game has consequences that go beyond the game, then it becomes less playful, less likely to come into the category that I would call play. So when people are involved in, uh, in sports, it can be, there's two ways in which it can lose its playful characteristic. One is if winning becomes too important. <laughs> you're, you know, you're, you, it's the trophy is so important that, that, that that's really why you're doing it more so than just having fun. And the other is if you are being coached and told by a coach how to do it and what to do while you're doing it, then that, that violates part of the definition of what I've described as definition of play. One of the things about all your five points with play is how similar they are to what we now call 21st century skills. Um, you know, in schools, we say, we say a lot now, oh, we need to do more 21st century skills. These are the skills children need for the future. But then these are all things that children do naturally when we just give them the chance to play. 
That's exactly right. And isn't it interesting that these, um, the, you know, the play, of course, evolved, the tendency for children to play in these ways evolved in the world of long ago, well before industry, um, when we were hunter-gatherers. And it's very interesting that in a certain sense, the kinds of skills that hunter-gatherers needed are very similar to the kinds of skills that people need in today's economy. Uh, you have to be responsible for yourself. You have to have good social skills. You have to be creative. Hunting and gathering are very creative activities. There, there's, uh, it, it requires, uh, you know, there's no regular routine to it. Once you get to farming, a lot of farming is much less creative. You, you know, there's a lot of just plain hard work and farming, hoeing and weeding and all of that. And then when you get to factory work, there's a lot of just plain boring old hard work and factory work, you know, just working on assembly line or all of that kind of thing. So we went through a long period of human history after hunter-gatherer period where human beings had to do a lot of non-creative things for their work in order to survive. Uh, but very few people in the world today, uh, certainly not in the developed countries, are making a living either by farming or by working on an assembly line in the factory. <laughs> People more and more, especially as economies develop, and we have, we have robots to do the routine work. We have, uh, we have computers to do the number crunching and, and a lot of that kind of uh, routine work. We have computers that store all the information so we don't have to remember a lot of stuff in our heads. <laughs> so what do we need to be able to do? We need to be able to think outside the box. We need to think of, be able to ask questions that other people have never thought of asking and, and figure out answers to those things. We need to, we certainly need social skills, you know, computers at least so far can't replace us on that. Uh, we need moral values in the workplace. We need people who are thinking about, well, not just, you know, how much money can we make from this, but is this going to be good for the world or bad for the world? Um, we need to, um, these are all things that I would argue are developed by children in play. These are not things that are developed well in school lessons. And so, you know, school, develop, school kind of evolved to serve the, the functions that the people needed at an earlier time in history than today when we needed people to just do routine boring stuff and to memorize a lot of information, um, to be able to persist at tedious tasks over long periods of time <laughs> and so on. But that's, those, aren't the, those aren't the skills that, are, that the workplace is looking for today. Yeah. Um, one thing we know is from reading your book. I read your book in English. Mickey read yeah, it in the Chinese. Chinese version. Oh, uh, uh, good. And it was very interesting learning about the uh, anthropology side of history in terms of play, how hunter-gatherers played and how it changed from farming, like you just mentioned. Um, but then, as we've seen, you detail in your book, after the last 50, 60 years, Plays just decreased, schooling's increased, more classes, more tests. Right. And then parents don't seem to, although they seem a bit worried and they're happy to have a bit more play, they're not really ready to give up education as it is. Uh, so right. what, what's the kind of the boundaries for parents? What are they afraid of? You know, letting the kids outside to play, um, having more freedom in, in the school and what they choose to learn about. Yeah, so, you know, so my information comes primarily from the United States. So what I'm saying may not apply so completely to every place else. But what, um, what I can say here is that, first of all, over time, over the last 60 years, the amount of time that children have to spend in school and at school work has been continuously increasing. Um, the school the school year in the United States is now five weeks longer than it was when I was a child in the 1950s. The school day is much longer than it was before, uh, especially if you count homework. So when I was a child in the United States in the 1950s in elementary school, kindergarten through fifth grade or sixth grade, 
there was essentially no homework. Sometimes a teacher would uh, ask us to write a poem or a story or something creative like that at home and bring it in and share, usually something fun like that, but never did we carry books back and forth or, or worksheets back and forth. So we had much more time out of school to play outdoors with other kids than we had in school. Um, the, uh, the other thing that has happened over time regarding school is that recess has been greatly diminished. So when I was a kid in elementary school, it was six hour school day, but two of those hours were outdoors playing. We had a half hour recess in the middle of the morning, a half hour recess in the middle of the afternoon and a full hour at lunch and we were free to play. So we were only in the school classroom for four hours a day. <laughs> Um, that's very different today. So we had play was part of the school day for us and that's not true today. Most, most elementary schools now or many elementary schools have only 15 minutes of recess throughout through the entire day and lunch hour has been cut to about 20 minutes and the kids aren't even allowed outside. They just have to sit and eat in the cafeteria. So, uh, so then in addition to that, besides um, the fact that the kids go home and do homework, when they're, when they're through with homework, many of the kids are in adult directed activities that are sort of school-like, even though when they're not in school. So they may be taking classes, you know, the, somebody might be taking Chinese calligraphy, you know, or somebody might be studying karate, or somebody might be doing this or that or they might be doing some uh, sport that is adult directed sport, doing uh, little league baseball or soccer or some, some game which is not played because it's being directed by adults. And so they're still not just free to go out and play. So I think some of this has been driven by the view over time that, that children need adult direction to develop well. And I think that view came from the, from the school system. The school system is premised on the idea that children learn by being taught and directed by adults. And the, that school mentality has sort of taken over in the United States and, and of course in many other countries too. In addition to that, on top of that, we've developed a lot of fears that we didn't have in the past. Fears about the possible dangers of allowing our children outdoors. This is particularly true in the United States and in the UK and in Australia. It's a little less true in much of the rest of um, Europe, but it's still to some degree true there as far as I can tell. So the um, so we are afraid to, we, we believe that it's dangerous out there for children. And so we don't just send children out to play as we used to without some adult there to watch them. That's also part of why children get put in adult directed activities instead of just being sent outdoors to play. So, you know, when I was a kid, by the time I was five years old, I could go out any place in the town that I lived in on my bicycle, I was free to go. Nobody worried that something awful would happen to me. Now, even, even 10 or 11 and 12 year olds are often not allowed that kind of freedom that five year olds were allowed when I was a child. So this has been a gradual change. You now might even be accused of being a negligent parent if you allowed your child out without being watched. The truth of the matter is, certainly in the United States, that it is no more dangerous out there than it ever was. And in fact, crime is down from what it was in the past. Uh, it's actually safer out there, but we, we believe it's dangerous. And we believe it's dangerous partly because the media emphasizes whenever something bad does happen to a child, we all hear about it because it gets reported on the media. And we also have all these experts who are constantly telling parents how dangerous everything is. <laughs> so that's, um, that, so that is a change and parents more and more are listening to experts. They, it used to be that parents knew other parents in the neighborhood and they, they got a lot of information from their own parents and when they were growing up they had younger siblings that they took care of themselves. So by the time you had your own child, 
you had had a lot of experience with children and you kind of knew what you know, the ways in which children can be trusted and so on and so forth but now a lot of people are becoming parents and they've had very little experience with children before and and they don't have the same kind of network of connections with other with other parents who can help them uh, understand what children are capable of. And so they're more likely to listen to experts and experts often see their job as warning you of all the possible dangers. And then that gets overemphasized. And what, what happens is parents lose sight of the danger of not allowing your child freedom. <laughs> And this is what I think we've we lost sight of. When children grow up without the opportunity to go out and learn the courage, learn that they can do things on their own, then they suffer in ways that are is actually in the long run more dangerous than the possibility, than the small possibility of their being hurt or injured or something awful happening from playing, um, playing independently outdoors. It comes back to the... Um no, the, the adult-directed after-school clubs. You know, this club will teach your child creativity. This yeah. this club will teach your child communication skills. And then it's just right. a vicious circle going round and round. Um, so I want to talk now about the Sudbury Valley School. Um, that would be a, it's a very unusual model in China. I don't think anyone would really know about it. Yeah, it's um, a mixed age from age uh, three to eighteen. From uh, age four through um, through high school age, it could be eighteen. Could be what you know, whatever age people feel they're ready to leave. But typically, it's around the same areas. Typical high school graduation age runs somewhere between seventeen and nineteen. Typically, yeah, we actually have a, a one down the road from my parents' house in Kent, in England. It's called a so it's a suburb inspired East Kent school. I don't know if you've heard of it before. Uh -huh. uh, we've been trying to visit because of COVID-19, schools aren't allowing uh, oh, yes. usually they have, it's every Friday. But could you tell us more about, because you sent your own son to the Sudbury Valley School and right. why you chose that school and I need lots of research there that benefits you found in a school that didn't have a curriculum. It was mixed right. Up. Yes, well, it was really my son who chose the school. <laughs> he had been really rebelling in the regular public school, and um, and in a way that made it clear that um, it wasn't going to be good either for him or for the school for him to stay in the regular public school. So we found um, we found the Sudbury Valley School um, just a couple of miles from our home, and at that time that was still a place that he could walk to uh, and he was nine at the time actually 10 when he first when he actually started started going to the Sudbury Valley School so Sudbury Valley I'll just say a little bit about it it was founded in 1968 so it's been around for 52 years now uh, so this is not a new school this is not an experiment this is something that's been going on for a long time uh, it's got hundreds and hundreds of graduates who are out there in the real world doing well in the real world. So the way this school operates is that, um, first of all, it, in terms of the administration of the school, it operates as a, as a democratic community in which children have the full rights of citizens in the community. So the school meeting makes all the rules of the school and the school meeting consists of all the students and the staff members. You know, at any given time, there might be anywhere between 120 and 180 or so students at the school and maybe between seven and 10 staff members at the school. The staff members are the adults at the school. The staff members don't call themselves teachers because they don't feel they do any more teaching than anybody else at the school. Uh, they're just sort of the adults in the community um, and they are paid to be at the school and they sort of concerned about the long range planning for the school and, the, and, re, and keeping good relationships with the community and making sure that everything is done legally and so on and so forth. The things that you really need adults to do. 
but the rules are made democratically. So the and the rules, none of the rules of the school have anything to do with learning. The rules all have to do with just the kind of rules that any community needs. You know, you you basically there are rules about not damaging, not destroying property not hurting other people and so on and so forth. So there are quite a few rules that have developed over the years. Even, I mean, just to give you an example, there's a rule that if you take anything out, if you take out toys and play with them, even if you're only a four-year-old, you have to put them back at the end <laughs> and because otherwise it's just a mess. <laughs> and so there, so, so, um, so there's a rule like that. And so if a four-year-old takes out, um, some toys and leaves them scattered over the room, somebody else might bring that four-year-old up to the judicial committee saying, hey, you left these toys out. And so even though he's only four years old, he's brought before this judicial committee. And the judicial committee is a, is a group of students and the staff member. There's always at least one or two little kids on it, a couple of middle-sized kids and, the, and a teenager or two on it. And, one staff member on it and so you're kind of brought up it's like a jury decides whether you were guilty or innocent and if guilty what the consequence might be and so if you've left out toys maybe the consequence would be for one day you're not allowed in the playroom with toys <laughs> so that's sort of your punishment for it so that's a that's an example of a of a sort of innocuous sort of a, a simple rule and and how that would be handled so that's the way the school operates administratively in terms of education there's no educational requirements there's no the courses aren't even offered at the school but if a group of kids gets together and they say we would like to have a little course in something they can usually talk a staff member into running it if they want a staff member to run it and it only goes as long as the students want it <laughs> and it, and uh, so that's the um, so, so mostly what happens is the children are just free to play, explore, do those things that I just described that children naturally do uh, in their own ways in this age-mixed environment. They're not separated by age. So there, there are children there from age 14 on through about 17, 18, 19 years old. And they're not segregated by age. There's an outdoor, there's a lot of outdoor space. There's a woods nearby that they can play in. There's a pond uh, that sometimes they fish in in the winter they might ice skate on it um, there are rocks to climb on and so on so there's a nice outdoor space and then indoors there's a kitchen that they can use if they want to cook something there's uh, an art room with a lot of art supplies there's uh, there's music rooms uh, soundproofed music rooms if you want to play instruments and not bother other people by as you practice your instruments. There's lots of books lining all the rooms. There's books everywhere. There are computers, of course, uh, yeah, although most kids these days also have their own computers, which they bring in with them. So that's, um, so that's what the school is. And if you went to the school at any given time when school is in session, knowing only that it was a school, you might assume it was on recess because you would see kids playing, you would see kids, some kids taking naps, you would see kids just hanging out, listening to music, kids talking to one another. Uh, you would basically see kids doing the kinds of things that you would assume kids would do when they're free to do what they want to do. Very little of it would look like academic work. <laughs> you might, you, you would find a lot of kids reading, but they'd be reading what they want to read. They wouldn't be generally reading textbooks. So that's the, um, that's what you find. And, um, and so when my son started there, I was concerned. This was before I, when I was in a very different area of research, uh, but I was concerned um, about his future because uh, although he was happy there and I could see why he was happy there, I was concerned, would he, would he be able to get, what kind of a job would he be able to get when he was an adult? Or would he be able to go on to college, to higher education, the university if he, uh, if he wanted to? And uh, so I did a study of the graduates way back, um, way, way back, this was now around 1980. And, um, 
and what I found was that the graduates were doing very well in the world. <laughs> um, they were, those who wanted to go to university were not having any great difficulty getting in. Um, even those who had never taken a course before, they'd never done anything like school before. Now here they were going on to the university. They had prepared themselves to uh, take the SAT test, which is the college admission test, if you wanna go to a, a, a more elite university in the United States. Uh, they had developed good resumes. They had figured out what they needed to do to get in uh, and got in. And then they did well once they were in college if they chose to do that way. Not everybody went to college. Those who were going on to careers that don't require college, many of them very successful. You know, if you're, many of them starting their own businesses of one sort or another or becoming craftspeople or artists or musicians of one sort or another and doing well at that. Uh, and there's, a, there's quite a variety of other jobs. Somebody became a ship captain and in that initial study that I did. Uh, somebody else became an inventor, a machinist, an inventor. They didn't go to college to do that. Uh, so, so, the, um, so, so I felt comforted by that study that I did. I didn't have to worry that much. I figured my son would be okay because it looked like most of the graduates were doing well. So this was a this was kind of a very um, op eye-opening finding for me. This was, um, uh, you know, here's a school that really violates our notion of what school is, and children growing up in a very different way from the way that most people think they have to grow up in order to be successful, and yet here they are successful. <laughs> so that that it was really that study that led me to change my area of research and try to understand well how is it that children are learning? How you know they're clearly becoming educated if we define education as learning the things you know to be able to live a successful adult life. And uh, so they were clearly becoming educated. And then the question was, well, how were they becoming educated in this setting? And then of course that led to, to really looking more closely at play and curiosity and how children, how children learn when they're free to learn in their own natural ways. Well, um, I remember when I read the book and I was learning about the school, I was thinking, it can't possibly work. And we actually spoke to family members and other teachers and they were like, you can give them a little freedom, but you still have to have a core curriculum for them to build around. But then you, we saw your TED talk um, and then we learned about the research you did and about the graduates. And you see all these results of them doing well, being successful. And then you think, why is the rest of education still going the way it's going and not changing? Um, so this, the next question I would ask is, you've been around the world, you've seen different systems. Which one do you think is on the right track? Is there a country you think is on the right track or a particular model or approach that you think is kind of going the right way? Um, I wouldn't say that there's a country that is going the right way. Um, I think that there's a certain sense in which, um, see, I think, that the, I think that the change that's going to occur can't occur within the traditional school system. Um, and the reason it can't is because the system, no matter what country you're looking at, is too entrenched in its ways. It, can't, it can make modifications, it can make small modifications. There have always been progressive educators who have tried to make changes within the regular school system that liberalize it in some ways. They give the children a little more freedom, a little bit more choice, and so on and so forth. But the problem is if you do that, but you still retain the idea that the school system is responsible for children's education and has to measure it. As long as you're measuring what children learn, then you're also dictating what they have to learn. <laughs> So if you're going to judge children, if you're going to say that, okay, children, we're going to, we need to make sure that children can read by a certain age, by the age of five or six or seven or whatever age you decide, then no matter how it is that you teach reading, whether it's a more direct instruction manner or a more progressive manner, 
your judgment as to whether that succeeded depends upon the fact, the idea that children are going to be able to read by that age. <laughs> now it turns out that direct instruction works better than anything progressive if that's your goal, is to get children to all read by a certain age. No matter what it is, as long as you've got a clear-cut vision of what you think children need to know by a certain time, then that's going to lead you to just teach it in the most direct way and make children learn it because otherwise you as the teacher have failed. So what you have to do if you're going to have self-directed education is you have to say, we're not going to measure learning. And, and I don't know of any school system in the world that's ready to say that. <laughs> You know, that Sudbury Valley can do that, and schools that have modeled after Sudbury Valley, but they're not part of a big bureaucratic education system. They're not, so, but they're basically said, we trust children, we're not gonna measure. So, so the fact of the matter is, my research indicates that everybody learns how to read, but they don't all learn how to read by any particular age. <laughs> Some of them don't learn to read until as late as 10 or 11 years old. They, they're interested in other things. They're doing all kinds of fun and interesting things. They're learning a lot. But there's a few kids who have, have just don't see any reason to read uh, until they're as late as 10 or 11 years old. Not very many. But so if you had a system that everybody had to learn to read by a certain age, those kids would have to be forced to learn to read and you would, it no longer would be self-directed education. Everybody learns to use numbers and in, in, to the degree that they need numbers in their real life. And if they go on to higher education and the university is requiring that they know certain math, they'll learn that math just so they can get into the university and they'll learn it very quickly and easily because they're motivated to do it. So the uh, so I think that's I think that's it. I think that you as long as you can't make the changes gradually. One of the here's another thing: so the Sudbury Valley School works in part largely because it doesn't segregate children by age. A lot of my own research is focused on how little children are learning from older children and older children are learning even from their interactions with younger children. If everybody's the same age and they had that freedom, they wouldn't learn much because they, they're, you know, if let's say you've got a group of kids, nobody knows how to read. Well, they're not gonna learn how to read from their friends. <laughs> But if you got a group of kids age mix and some of them know how to read and some of them don't know how to read, the, the kids who don't know how to read, they see the kids who can read and they want to be like that. <laughs> or they're playing games that involve reading or they're playing games that involve adding up scores and calculating averages and so on. And so they're learning numbers and some arithmetic just in their play with other kids. But if everybody was the same age and at the same level, that learning wouldn't occur. So the point I'm making is it almost has to come as a package. You almost have to have the, go the whole way. If you go just part of the way, if you do one of these things that Sudbury Valley does, it doesn't necessarily work. And in fact, it may work less than what we currently have. <laughs> so I think that's part of the problem. I think the way the education revolution will occur is not by change within the government-run uh, education systems in, in any country, it will occur in those countries and places where parents are free and able to not send their children to the government schools. And it will occur, uh, it, and, and at some point, so this is already occurring in the United States, there's already something like 4% of American school children are not going to school they're being homeschooled and most of them are being homeschooled. Some of them are going to schools like Sudbury Valley School, but more of them are being homeschooled. And a large number of those being homeschooled are being homeschooled by the method that's called unschooling, which means that the children are free to follow their own interests, to play and explore. And as more and more people are doing this, they're getting together and creating learning centers that are something like Sudbury Valley School, where the kids can get together in age mixed groups, they can find other kids to play with, where there's a number of adults that they could learn from if they want to learn from them. Uh, so 
So that's happening. And every year, every four years, the United States Department of Education does a survey of where children are going to school. And every time they do the survey, there's more homeschoolers than before. And also more of the homeschoolers are saying, we're not following a formal curriculum at home. We're allowing our children to develop their own curriculum. So that's already happening. And I think when it reaches a certain point, when it reaches the point where everybody knows somebody who's doing this, it will no longer seem so strange to do it. And more and more people will start to do it. And then at some point, there will be pressure on the government for the government to support schools like Sudbury Valley. Um, I, I, part of my work, I'm, I've been doing a research on the possibility that libraries would become the centers for education in the future. Libraries are already centers for self-directed education because you go to the library and they don't tell you what you have to study. They help you find the books for what you want to do. Uh, and more and more libraries in the United States, at least, are now taking on other functions. They have maker spaces in them so you can go and use a 3D printer and use other technological things to build things. They have crafts and art in libraries. And some libraries now are even have free play at the library for young children. So it wouldn't take too great a, a leap of imagination for libraries to actually become like Sudbury schools. And they're already publicly supported. So I, I envision a kind of change where gradually fewer and f more and more people are leaving the public school system and more and more people are starting to make use of the libraries to support the children's education. Do you think then it can work on a large scale, particularly in school sizes? So like Sudbury Valley is a very small school compared to other school models. Yes. A few hundred children. But if you say have a typical school that maybe a thousand plus children in the city, would you get the same results if they still went in like a Sudbury Valley model? I think so. I, I, my guess is that you wouldn't want, my guess is that like, you know, 100 or 200 kids to a school is probably about the right number. You know, that's enough so that there's, you know, there's lots going on. There's enough kids to have lots of friends, both your age and older and younger. Um, but uh, so it, so you wouldn't in a city of 10,000 people, you would have a lot of schools. <laughs> you wouldn't have just everybody going to the same school. You would have a lot of schools. It's no more expensive to have a lot of small schools than it has is to have one huge school. Um, I, well, I suppose you could argue that one way or the other, but I think that really it isn't more expensive. And it's a lot more practical, I think, to keep the schools smaller. And it's more comfortable when the school is smaller. Even with 100 or 200 kids, the kids at least kind of all know one another. They're not strangers to one another. And, and the school is small enough that you can take part in the school meeting and you feel like you are a real part of that school. Once it goes beyond a certain size, it would be harder for children to feel that they're really a part of that school. It'd be harder to run the school meeting in a way that everybody gets to vote and realizes that their vote counts and so on. So I'd be inclined actually to keep the schools at maybe around 100 to 150 uh, students per school. But you know, you don't need big factory-like schools. <laughs> you know, the, basically Sudbury Valley is a large house and a remodeled barn. <laughs> and, um, and that's the kind of thing you, know, you would, in a city, some of the schools that are modeled after Sudbury Valley that are in cities, ideally they work best if they're located near a park. So the park becomes the school's playground because it's hard in a city to have the same kind of outdoor space as part of the school that Sudbury Valley has, which is in a more uh, rural area. I guess then to end, uh, I'd like to talk about COVID-19 and the effect that's kind of had on education. It's been a real test for parents, schools, to see, well, how important is education in schools during this time? A lot of our family and friends, um, all their kids have been at home for six months now, and they've all told us they started by having a schedule, you know, they were going to have the kids do math at this time. Right. Um, 
going to have to kiss you English at this time, blah, blah, blah. But then they said after a couple of days, they gave up. They couldn't do it anymore. But then they still buy into the idea that, oh, they need to go back to school. They need to do this. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. What have you seen with COVID-19, particularly in America, and uh, how that's affected schooling? Yeah, I think that um, I think that what you're describing is happening here too. I think that um, um, I'll tell you, we did a through the the Let Grow nonprofit that I'm part of. We did a study uh, in April, near the end of April. So the schools had been closed for about a month when we did this study. And it was a survey of 800 families uh, in the United States across the country and pretty much across socioeconomic categories and race. Um, and um, these were all families that had a child, some, child somewhere between the age of eight and 13 years old. And we asked uh, questions, both of the parents and of the children, that were aimed at getting at how they're adapting to uh, the kids being home. And um, the results, at least at that time, uh, indicated that the families are doing a lot better than most people would have predicted. Uh, the uh, kids, one of the questions to the kids was, are you more calm now uh, or less calm than you were before schools were closed? And perhaps not surprisingly, tw about twice as many said they were more calm. <laughs> after schools closed. So contrary to the view that everybody thought the children would be so stressed out being stuck at home, they were by that measure less stressed. We also asked the parents a similar question about the children. Our, basically was, are your child, is your child more stressed or less stressed uh, than before school closures? And again, roughly twice as many said less stressed as said more stressed. One of the questions we asked was, um, are you, you and your child experiencing more conflicts or fewer conflicts between than you were before the school closures. 73%, believe it or not, said fewer conflicts. So, you know, the kids are home, they're home. You would think this is a setup for a lot of conflicts, but they're saying, most of them are saying fewer conflicts. Well, if you think about it, what are the usual conflicts? It's, you know, getting your kid up to go to school, <laughs> getting them off on that school bus, making them do their homework, and so on and so forth. If those are no longer issues, there may, it may not be so surprising that there are actually fewer conflicts. We also ask the kids, are, you, are, are your parents allowing you to do things that you like to do that they didn't allow you to do before? And the majority of them said yes. And then they, and then we asked them, well, what kinds of things? So they're everything from making dinner by themselves, you know, who wouldn't want their kid to make dinner, <laughs> you know, but the kids are doing it, even doing laundry. The kids actually, you know, if you get bored enough, you want to do these things. And then you find out, oh, you know, I feel like an adult and I feel grown up. Now I can do these things. I know how to do these things. But a lot of them are learning how to ride bicycles for the first time. I mean, we were raising a generation of kids who didn't have time to ride a bicycle. I mean, how awful is that? So now kids are riding bicycles. I used to even see that in my neighborhood. I'm a big bicycle rider, and I used to go out riding, and I'd never see kids outdoors riding bicycles in the neighborhood I live in. Now I see them all the time. And I often see a lot of parents teaching their kids to ride bicycles. So I think that this is the optimistic way to look at it. I think that kids are, uh, are having opportunities to play and explore and do new things that they didn't have time to do before when they were so busy with schoolwork and so busy with these other after-school programs, which also got closed. And I think parents are discovering for the first time that their children are more competent than they thought they were, that they're more capable of doing things on their own, figuring out how, what to do, that they don't have to be constantly amused by adults. You can let them be and they're gonna be okay. So I do believe that there will be, I think that after, after the schools reopen, I think there will be a fair number of parents who won't send their kids back. Um, I think there will be an increase in homeschooling. And I think there'll be two reasons why they won't send their kids back. One is they've realized, they've sort of experienced a little bit of this kind of 
unschooling type of homeschooling. And they've seen, hey, you know, my kid is learning a lot. My child is reading. They're reading books they want to read, but they're learning from those books, right? And, uh, and the other reason is I think, at least here in the United States, I think it's still going to be physically dangerous to go back to school. The virus is not being controlled. <laughs> Is still and so that the government is, you know, the Trump administration is urging schools to open and and so on, and some states are urging them to open because they're concerned about the economy and so on and so forth, and they're not sufficiently concerned about the lives of children and families. So even if it's the case that as it, it there's some evidence that children are less likely to get. COVID-19 and don't suffer as much the damage from it. But nevertheless, if they're going off to school, they're going to be exposed to the virus. They're going to come home with the virus. And even if they don't get sick, their parents or grandparents will. They're not going to be segregated away from them. I think it's going to continue to be very dangerous to send your child, physically dangerous, to send your child back to school. So I think the combination of those two things there will be more people who will try homeschooling and at least some of those families will find it works for them and they'll stick with it. Other families will find this doesn't work so well from us, for us. Once it's safe for our kids to go back to school, we'll send them back to school. Now, one thing I should say about the survey that we did is one of the questions we asked was, are you looking forward to going back to school? Now, everything I said before suggests that they wouldn't be looking forward to going back to school. But the truth of the matter is, is more said they were looking back to forward. The kids were looking back to forward to going back to school. They wanted to get back to school. And, all, and then we asked, and then we asked if you are looking forward, why? And essentially all of them said to see their friends. Yeah. Friends no, are- no, not class. It's not the classes. Friends are very important to children, and it's very hard for them to be separated from their friends. If there was some other way to connect them to their friends, I think they would prefer that over going back to school. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. Um, I know one thing you're doing soon will be the first place summit, um, which we're going to be eagerly watching um, and we've already signed up for. Uh, but until then, thank you very much again, and uh, we really appreciate you taking some time for us. Thank you. Thank you. It's very nice to meet both of you. Thank you.